Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Ahoy, Pete. You and me, back in the saddle, doing our thing. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, for episode 202, New Eden, comes your way now via 200-year-old looping transmission. Indeed, Pete, 200 years ago, the the World War Threes, etc. I can't believe that this is only the second week of Discovery being back. Obviously, we're about to dive on to the episode shortly, but it feels like we're just back in this routine, podcasting, talking, watching, etc., and it really is just two weeks into what'll be a 14-week journey. The only disappointment is that there remain just 12 more episodes to season two. And with that, Pete, just a bit of fleet news before we arrive at the episode. Jonathan Frakes gave an in-depth interview with Deadline, which we will link to in the podcast description. Some of the big takeaways are that he is very impressed with Kurtzman as the guru of Star Trek, and Frakes is very happy about Patrick Stewart's enthusiasm for the Picard series, where Picard is not, not part of Starfleet anymore. Uh, quick Frakes quote here, what I've learned from being on the set of this show discovery is that they remind me of my show they hang out together they support each other and they stay on set to watch each other shoot scenes and you know that isn't always the case on television and that came precisely across our screen in this episode continued involvement from the rest of the bridge crew uh a getting an away mission here detmer saving the day with the donut maneuver uh more Characters in Star Trek, always a good thing. It's also interesting to see these characters in a light where it's not the war, it's not the pressure of the spore drive, it's not spore drive plus the war. It's kind of, in a certain sense, seeing them in a natural light for the first time, uh, which I think is one of the joys of this, uh, this early portion of the season. And now for our mission briefing. Discovery cruises along through a static charged cloud as Spock's log gives us the voiceover from the end of the previous episode. Uh, Additionally, he says that he's encoded the audio file uh, to where it must lead him in the event of his death. It certainly was a slightly shocking moment. You know, I know we got, by and large, this uh, this log in the last episode, but uh, seeing that excellent effect shot, and then all of a sudden Spock kind of injected into the show, albeit with familiar dialogue, definitely was this moment of, of disruption in the best sense. The story quickly takes us inside Pike's new ready room. Pete, it's, it's earth tones. It's very friendly. People can sit. Uh, we see that Burnham is sharing that audio file, that log entry, and uh, shares the revelation of Spock having drawn the seven signals months before they appeared. Pete, what's next? Spock picking lottery numbers? Yeah, right. Uh, Pike brings up Starfleet's rendering, which is damn near identical of those seven signals. And... Uh, he asks Burnham to sit down and explains that Spock is in a psychiatric unit on Starbase 5. And when asked why she nor her parents were contacted, that's because Spock 
did not want them to know. I think there's this slight moment where it's like, what? How could they do this to Spock? But, you know, I think if nothing else, it's a reminder that we are in this very early portion of the story, uh, the Spock story of, of Star Trek history, etc. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it'll all work out, Pete. He's going to make it back to the ship eventually, etc. Um, he will swim with whales. He will swim with whales. He will grow hippie hair uh, in researching Colonar back on Vulcan in the future from past Star Trek. It's all very timey-wimey. Uh, bottom line, though, why is uh, why is Pike breaking this privacy here? The, the knowledge of the signals outstrips his desire for privacy. Uh, Pike wonders, you know, maybe Burnham could get some extra info out of him. She says that she hasn't spoken to him in years. And uh, we then get bounced off that, some interesting Pike character stuff. He can sympathize. His father uh, father taught science uh, and then volunteered to teach comparative religion. So somebody who brought some uh, controversy to the home. A confusing household, to say the least. They didn't agree on a lot. Um, but now that he's shared everything... He wants Burnham to trust him. Big issue after the Lorca debacle in season one. Is there anything you'd like to share with me, Michael Burnham? And anything that happened in our first mission together where I suddenly appeared to you after something else appeared to you and, and anything at all? I, I think the narrative stretches it out just a tad too much for me here we of course get the flashback very appropriate and then her i i have to say i have to say that honestly i have to say that honestly i uh, never thanked you for saving my life because i'm not going to tell you about the red angel until like act five um so i guess the good news is they don't have long to ponder over that thank you because uh they're called to the bridge a new red signal has appeared pete it's the mission of the week uh, Tilly has been using the deflector dish to act like sonar. Uh, Burnham's going to give another take to uh, chart the red shift by warping for five seconds, doing some some math and some science in order to figure out where the mission of the week will take them. Pete, is it right around the corner? Five seconds worth of warp later as they drop out, they're able to ping it. The uh, signal is coming, Matt, from the beta quadrant 51,450 light years away, a distance that would take 150 years. Uh, Pike's children's children would be lucky to get there. By the way, Pete, if the dear listeners think that we're not going to spend some time breaking down Tilly's home screen or whatever that was as she was <laughs> barring Burnham's console, don't worry. We have in-depth analysis of her appointment calendar to come later in the podcast uh pete if only there was a way that they could go make space travel faster saru suggests a time to dust off the spore drive which i have to admit surprised me because i really genuinely believed uh that from a from a writing room standpoint they were taking that toy off the shelf out of the room locking it away for uh something later down the line than the second episode after they were never going to use it again. Well, I think you have the narrative prerogative to break it out. I had a bigger issue with, Hey, we just packed all this away. 
uh, now we're going to break it all out and get Stamets ready in 20 minutes to make a jump here. We get the expositional recap for Pike and new viewers, perhaps. Hey, he had been injected with tardigrade DNA in season one. Starfleet expressly forbids and looks down on genetic manipulation, but because of the war effort, they allowed it. Pike says, well, they'll give us a dispensation here, you know, because of the importance of these signals. Well, Pete, luckily that's it for expositional info dumps. Cut to engineering. Is Stamets ready to rock and roll Tilly again? He's not because he needs to share some expositional backstory as a reminder for new listeners or people who have forgotten. He saw Culber in the network. Culber was dead. Uh, Stamets is not. He's reluctant to return. He wants to, set, to stay on the living side of the life cycle. And this a small example of why i think this is not the best episode ever because it's one of a number of expositional info dumps given to us in rapid succession in order to make sure that we the audience can keep track of what i suspect is a could have been a longer story but is instead presented as is it's a transitional episode as i talked with you off mic about they're moving us from point A to point B. Sometimes the stories are not going to be as epic or as well done as the wonderful second season premiere. And we've got to, you know, move the story football down the road or two signals in now. Um, so that's the sacrifice sometimes that comes along with that. Um, Stamets was under the impression that they wouldn't be using this again. And given his discomfort with everything on discovery, reminding him of, uh, Dr. Hugh Culber, the fear of going in the network and literally seeing him again is something that's heavy on his mind. Um, what I really appreciated and what I think they're definitely preparing us here, given what, happens later in the episode and I suspect is going to happen later in the season. The idea of mycelium as fungi are the universe's recyclers termination begets creation that life is eternal, that uh, things can come back. So we've definitely more than cracked open the door, um, particularly with what takes place in this episode and the revelation to Tilly back on the bridge. They're ready to jump. Pike says to be bold, be brave, be courageous. Pete, I'm going to assume that if I go to CBS.com right now or Star Trek.com right now, <laughs> I will be able to get a Star Trek discovery t-shirt that says be bold, be brave, be courageous, Star Trek discovery, something like that. Um, Cause surely they wouldn't turn up an opportunity like that. Let's hope. Um, but this is Pike's first black alert, his first spore drive jump. Uh, and when they drop out of it, uh, really feels it. And Saru uh, empathizes. You never forget your first. Indeed, a little, a little cheekiness here, continuing with a slightly lighter touch in the second season. I think there was a little reused footage as they get ready to jump, which is fine. I mean, it's the same, you know, whirly gig stuff on the top deck plating or the top hull plating, rather. Um, and uh, 
we get the jump and this interesting moment of Stamets who just kind of storms out of out of engineering um kind of he's done his part and now back he goes uh one wonders if maybe he experienced things differently but we'll talk about that later back on the bridge burnham has uh scanned humans on the planet and pete there's also a communication signal that says they're under attack so red alert yes but no sign of the signal so for the second time they've been led someplace and there's no red dot. So we'll definitely discuss a little later when we talk theories about these peekaboo dots here. Um, no one should have, no humans should have settled this far out into the beta quadrant. Um, and they go to red alert, pinpoint and enhance the location of the signal, which is a church. Yes, one of those old timey churches uh it turns out that the communication signal indeed the people have been there for 200 years how do they get there that's of course the central question to the episode uh the credits show no wilson cruz welcome to the era of flexible credits uh the episode's teleplay is by vaughn wilmot and sean cochran with story by akiva goldsman and sean cochran pete the director is jonathan frakes who i think as an up-and-coming young man probably has much <laughs> Star Trek in his future. <laughs> yes, they had really uh, been out in front on social media of his return to the chair uh, for this episode, having done it in season one, um, directing the 10th episode, Despite Yourself. I think too, Pete, if I remember my social medias of the summer correctly i think that like literally the week before he directed an episode of uh the orville uh so some continuity there uh side note ratings are not great for the orville uh if only they were i don't know on a streamer that completely depended on them then further seasons would be guaranteed but pete back to this particular episode here uh due to some or after some research uh, it can be said that the humans on this planet are refugees of a time from Earth's World War Three. You know, Pete, when things got worse and people screwed up even more than it feels like is now. Um, Pete, they're also speaking Federation Standard. I must admit, I have not looked this up on Memory Alpha, but I'm pretty darn sure this might be the first time Federation Standard is confirmed to be a thing. It sounds vaguely familiar, if only because a lot of sci-fi shows will revert to the verbiage of standard. Um, I guess we couldn't just say they're speaking earth English circa <laughs> 2053. Uh, but yeah, it's, oh, it's a choice. So Pete, that means, first of all, memory alpha has no federation standard in there. So given how the episode, you know, airwaves or computer waves or whatever less than 48 hours ago i'll take that as this is the first time it's been confirmed that there's a common language but by your logic pete that means that federation standard you know good old earthers good old you know us of a federation standard is english everybody speaks english in the future that's easy when you have a universal translator that brings things to english i i, I don't know i think I think the English route would have been simpler than to confuse with a standard Federation language being English. But or hey, as, as I understand, it's the language of uh, we don't do commerce anymore. 
um, maybe maybe they had this discussion and then they said, well, wait, when people watch in German, obviously it's, you know, dubbed over, but, you, you know, you know the deal that it was made for English language and then dubbed, but in Germany, Federation Standard is German. In France, I was just going to say that. So for Fred, it's Dutch. There you go. Congrats, Fred. Greets. <laughs> Federation standard. <laughs> um, but how did these people get there and can the discovery intrude? This is an interesting discussion. Uh, Pike really hammering home that this is a prime directive situation. Uh, a, because they are pre-warp and B, because of the difference in technology and the way the Clark's third law has been reinterpreted in terms of uh technological differences making the discovery indistinguishable from gods so certainly you know major societal implications here if they do out themselves well for the 11,000 people on the planet spread across 10 different locations 10 settlements the issue of general order one being a big deal uh hence pike bringing up uh, the change to Clark's law um, that the te technology would be indistinguishable um, and that scientists and theologians alike have debated this fairly weighty issue. So we've reached the dilemma of the episode. And it's, it's a compelling dilemma. Uh, the at least short-term solution or the short-term first step is the need for them to embed with the local population. Uh, Awokashan is the one that can help them lead point on that uh, because her, of her Luddite background and uh, also obviously behind the scenes, the desire to promote some of these, you know, mostly button pushing characters from the first season to larger roles. Uh, but Pete, it's also now time for the B plot in the shuttle bay. Tilly is wearing her sweet, sweet visor to inspect the asteroid fragment and uh, she's going to dig deep into that core. Very, very heavy um, asteroid substance that she's dealing with. She's got the grav simulator going. She's got the laser core that she's using. She's doing this all alone, which later will get her in trouble with Saru. Um, but the, the weight of the metrion charged asteroid here uh one cubic centimeter weighs in at a portly 1.5 metric tons and we see that little rock drift out of the grab field and completely crush a table which was awesome it was and i must admit my expectation was not that most of this asteroid would be used in this story. So as this was unfolding uh, upon first viewing, how this B-plot fit into the rest of the story was not immediately apparent. This is all uh, a compliment, by the way. So the fact that we're off on some slower-paced science-y thing for, you know, whenever we're going to use this massive thing, it was, a, it was a neat use of something that clearly, you know, that one little fragment... I think it's going to be, you know, coming into play in future episodes, but the rest of the thing serving a story master in this episode, uh, she gets that sample and I was like, okay, great, you know, problem solved here, but then it discharges on her, sending her flying, her ears bloody, blood coming out of her ears, which is TV code for very, very hurt. 
this after there was a review this week, Matt, that says that Star Trek Discovery doesn't build stories. Yes, this is a largely standalone episode. I mean, I get, I'm sure everybody gets the pieces that are not standalone, including like this is Red Burst 2 of 7 in a uh, seven episode arc to show, you know, like fine, we all see that, but um, it's also. Where'd they get this asteroid (laughs) last episode? And why is Tilly doing these things? Because of the things she applied for? Two episodes ago, season one finale, and worked on in short trek number one. Um, while I was not dazzled, you know, f- five out of four stars for this episode. I mean, this is an episode that wants to be both a self-contained yarn with a morality kiss on the forehead at the end and to carry through continuing stories. And it does both. Great visual um upside down discovery leading us to the beam in onto the planet we will later come to know as terralysium in the community of new eden uh i was a bit shocked to see them beam down you know exterior bright light now of course they did their scans and knew no one was around well i guess no one except for jacob who they determined was was within walking distance but not seeing distance uh, they enter that church into which neither Burnham uh, nor Wokishan have ever set foot. Obviously not this church, just churches in general. Um, it, by what we see, I think even before the dialogue hits on it, we're picking up on the multi-religious flavor. And uh, sure enough, between the stained glass windows and the the text on the, uh, on the lectern there, it seems that the uh, people have cobbled together a new scripture with pieces of Earth's old religions. Yeah, the world of our redemption written across the text in a cloth there and then snippets of their beliefs, which initially do not seem as light and welcoming um, before they are uh, suddenly talking to Jacob, who wants to know why they aren't in the fields. And right before Jacob comes through the door, I think there's a little bit of a reminder. I won't say reacclimation, Pete, because every Star Trek fan remembers everything perfectly. But, you know, let's not forget that Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry come from a an atheist point of view. I think that Star Trek in general, that atheism has more been turned into kind of an, an agnostic perspective. But Burnham and Wokashan definitely showing, you know, the well-established contemporary 23rd century 24th century view on religion which is this old thing that yeah i've seen buildings like that called churches and i've done the the quick readings of you know all the religions of earth i have a basic understanding i read the the holodeck all all their texts were required reading at the academy for the mythology of uh you know middle to late age earth the mythology of the dum-dums, you know. So, again, it's just kind of this thing where where I think we are all reminded, as much as Burnham is kind of reflective of us and she's the star and whatnot, it's kind of this like, oh, right, they don't do religion at all, which is completely different compared to Jacob, who, uh, as you said, Pete is surprised to see them not working. Uh, Pike, no, no, Christopher, he says that they're from the north, unfamiliar with these ways. Um and then Pete, luckily, when they go meet the uh, the, the female priestess character, the All Mother, 
every time she meets people who come from this <laughs> common origin of a mere 200 years ago, that's when she says, hey, let's have a thing where I, I give you expositional uh, info dump in 2253. The first ones to cover and hit from nuclear bombs. An angel appeared, delivered them here, blah, 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 blah. What brought them? Uh, I don't know, but we must rely on religion and uh, we can't have science anymore because we lack technology. Are you caught up at home? The thing that works the most in this sequence and from a production standpoint, these stained glass windows were tremendous and using those visuals, you know, including the stained glass that has bombs falling. And of course the red angel with the, the flecks of light in front of it. Um, but that the first saved Matt, you know, the, the first saved from your catechism on new Eden, right? Uh, soldiers and civilians who took cover in the white church, um, had been whisked away, uh, at the moment of their seeming destruction from world war three, as those jets overhead dropped the bombs, We've obviously discussed many times before on the podcast, we as Star Trek fans in general, how Discovery is inhabiting this uh, kind of bare spot in the Star Trek chronology. Um, and, you know, yes, there are some minor quibbles where it matches up with 1960s production looking stuff, you know. But what's interesting is this is now going back to another bare spot. Of course, no one's going to miss the church that suddenly up and disappeared because it was the middle of World War Three and bombs were falling. So... It again kind of is working in this interesting area of, you know, you you can get away with quick taking 200 people away or whatever it is, uh, 200 years in the past. You can do that because the story allows for such a disappearance. And it's at this point in the All Mother's recollection to everyone who shares this faith that Burnham again sees the flashback of the Red Angel. Yeah, really hammering home. This is part of the Red Angel story arc. Um, ultimately, though, again, there's this kind of reiteration that uh, the society is essentially at a standstill with what we know of Starfleet and the three officers down there, although obviously the, the, uh, the local folk don't know that end of things. Uh, Burnham continues to push a fact-based perspective. Uh, just in passing, Pete, it's noted that there's a soldier's camera from 200 years ago, but no one can power it. Uh, Pike then thanks them for the fellowship and is given permission for the three of them to sleep in the church, uh, which on the one hand, I was a little surprised, like really they're going to hang out in the church, not, you know, sleep in our house or sleep in the barn. But if it is all part of that one New Eden community and if they are uh, all so religiously adherent, then I think it does make sense. Jacob showing his clear interest in a scientific background that Burnham seems to speak of and remembering too that they have these um, battery units that have died out and the windows have been dark ever since Matt thus pilgrimages to their shrine have dwindled a good uh, bit of uh, I don't know story previewing for for the end of the episode we head back up to discovery where uh, a sprightly new friend awakens Tilly, who's in uh, sick bay. She's going to be okay. 
we learn as Saru comes to wag his finger, uh, Dr. Pollard there to wag her finger medically, but Saru uh, noting that Tilly was sampling the asteroid without permission, although he's immediately uh, it catches his ears that this is a dark matter navigational interface that she's trying to pursue. Uh, he is impressed, but notes, Pete, evergreen knowledge, we must care for ourselves before others. Yeah, that he tried, or he tried to, that he did learn 90 Federation languages beyond Federation standard, I'm sure, Matt. Um, <laughs> we don't get the fluently answer, just a, a look at uh, Tilly when she asks that, so we can assume he did, because Saru is nothing if not thorough. Um, but that she's got to take care of herself the way he has learned to take care of himself, how much pressure he places on those slender shoulders of his. Again, the little bits of humor showing through. Yeah. And you might say, oh, well, they didn't do this last season, you know, just because. Well, no, just because was the specter of war and this, you know, major reflection into the nature of what it means to be the Federation. Now that things are a little more calm, he can yell at a you know at, at, at a pesky headstrong ensign and then say "Ooh, but that is a good idea and let me give you a little humor and let me give you a little wisdom um we're back in the star trek times uh saru of course can't dawdle he gets called to the bridge uh in part pete because the story's got to keep cooking with its pace here uh there are several rings around the planet the outermost one is instable and sending radiation headed to the planet uh, there's a moment where Saru looks overwhelmed, uh, particularly as it's noted that the radiation is going to prevent communication and transportation. But you know what, Pete? He he powers on through. 64 minutes, really bad, Matt. Placing them on the story clock to an extinction-level event. It, Pete, is that the same as nuclear winter? It is the nuclear winter. The irony that these people survived... Um, a nuclear holocaust being whisked away and now can't do that. It's at this time that Stamets breaks in, you know, because he was listening and heard this stuff. But uh, Through if, the closed door. <laughs> well, well, we'll, we'll let it go. It, it has to be what it has to be. But it's like, wait, I was on the other side of that door and heard what preceded my entrance. I can answer your question. But uh, the the first plan that they come up with, because they can't use transporters, using a shuttlecraft is going to uh, accelerate the ring's um, decompensation and uh, the, the particles will hit the planet sooner. We get an act break, then Pike decides, uh, who of course unawares uh, on the planet uh, of, of the nuclear threat, he decides to axe the distress beacon that has been playing for these 200 years, so these people just get left alone. Awokashan is all set to turn it off, and uh, Burnham pleads with Pike that these people need to be taken out, and uh, Pike reminds her again they are literally by definition pre-warp, uh, pre they should be left alone. And um, Wokushan notes the Beacon's batteries are long dead, but somebody has figured out how to power it. Pete, if only that somebody would turn the corner right now. <laughs> There's such an air of resignation in Pike in this portion of the story that this is what the Federation has determined. This is what I, 
as the Federation's representative have decided here. So we're in the basement and, you know, these people, general order number one. Yeah, we can't do anything here. We'll discuss more on that later, Pete. Something tells me he's had an event in his past with another planet that has taught him the importance of uh, choosing your battles carefully. Um, (laughs) uh, Jacob, of course, finds them. He notes that he's been trained a bit in the science. Earth must have evolved. He also has noted that their hands, their skin, it's all too soft to be living the physical outdoor lives that uh, that the New Edeners have. They must be from a ship that is there to save them. Uh, I think it's a great bit of transition that, uh, written for Pike here where he kind of sidesteps the issue and says, oh, we've intruded, my apologies. Uh, they're all set to leave. That's when Jacob throws a stun grenade, knocking them out. They wake up stunned. They're locked in the basement, Pete, that in no way they could just hit through. They got to do other things because it's not like creaky old wood that they could just put a good old-fashioned shoulder against and, you know, hit through. Well, if only, Matt, they brought down the only member of the Discovery crew who was a member of a Luddite collective growing up. Wait a minute, Pete. Joanna Awokashan is such a person. Uh, she can use a magnet to undo the slide bolt. If it's a slide bolt, it is. She uses a wire to slide it one way, then the magnet to unslide it. I guess it would have been a bit much to have the wire unslide it, although I think that would have been possible, but I digress. They're out, Pete. Back on Discovery, Tilly is spinning her wheels in sickbay, trying to figure out a solution. That nameless ensign seems to be reading her mind. Wink! As Tilly puts together the pieces of using the asteroid's uh, dense gravity, uh, she races to the bridge. Pete's still wearing the the the, the medical tunic there, uh, and says that they should launch the asteroid into the belt, as its gravity can be an invisible magnet. It's got to be easy from there, right? Of course. Um, and we, as viewers to this point, are certainly drawn to the fact no one else has seemed to react to Tilly's friend and she kind of like pulled out of the first meeting uh, in sick bay with Dr. Pollard and Saru, albeit with, you know, uh, uh, an expression like, oh, I shouldn't be in on this. But now we're starting to put it together. Yeah, I think it's w- it, it's well done. It's not meant to be the sixth sense it's not meant to be you know this multi-episode mystery here i mean clearly by the end but kind of you know through through first viewing eyes we're meant to kind of be ahead of it uh certainly ahead of tilly's uh realization uh on the bridge there's uh they break it down pete to understandable stuff for we the luddite collective watching discovery would need to do a donut in the asteroid field detmer isn't sure if she could pull it off but stamets could jump them in there uh all told pete you mentioned the story clock before very very um finely tuned story clock in this episode stamets has two minutes and 11 seconds to make it happen run mr stamets run thank goodness they had gotten everything out of storage earlier in the episode i know right back on the planet as jacob is in the middle of telling the all mother his uh his perception of events pike shows up irate that thou hast stolen you know thou shalt not steal and implicitly denies being from old earth 
they're clearly just going to continue with this tact of saying nothing or saying little. The Pike sees Rose, the, uh, the, the girl with Jacob, I think implication is his daughter, fiddling with a phaser. She doesn't know which end is the, the pointy end and the shooty end. He jumps on her. He takes a blast to his chest. Really nice moment. They could have done with just a simple you know, energy burst or whatever, but he takes the phaser to the ground. Then it fires, lifting his body up. Pete, his chest. Well, this is the old callback where if you fiddled with the phaser, you could get it to overload and basically use it as an explosive. Um, And that Pike hears it building up to detonation and he's the one to protect this child, even in the midst of general order number one. This shows Pete in the future touch ID to unlock your phone, to unlock your tablet, to unlock your phaser. It's really, really serious. Back up on the bridge here, Detmer, who's only had her pilot's license since 12, uh, is ready to execute the donut maneuver. So they go to black alert. Indeed they do. Uh, it's I don't want to take away from the story here. What they promised is basically what we get. Uh, they they jump on into the the asteroid fragments. The donut maneuver is started. Um, I think it's very cleanly presented in terms of they're there amidst the rocks. The asteroid comes out. Um, we see kind of the spinning action there as the debris gets picked up and uh, kind of shot back into the ring at large. It's a big success, and Saru is ready to get the uh, the landing party back. Yes, except. Now where we had the ticking clock of the asteroid and the extinction level event, we've got to get Pike back while he is still alive. Yes, the landing party gets to the church for, quote unquote, uh, safe haven, uh, for deliverance. Uh, They close the door. This is also a well-presented portion here visually. They close the door, Jacob and the, the, the priestess, uh you know there's discussion you know open the door no don't open the door and they open it just in time for that landing party to be kind of mid beam out uh thank heaven and then uh, on the bridge it's a job well done for everyone everyone cheers there's applause from everybody except for saru who does kind of the hands together and a, a point nod at detmer so i guess that's how you do it on on uh you know for the kelpian folks uh, then it's back to bed for Tilly, who again sees the unnamed Ensign. Uh, actually, she might be named in this scene. She sees May. May says, way to go, Stilly. <gasps> That's weird, Pete. That, that that sets off some bells. We've never heard that before. In Sick Bay, uh, Dr. Pollard explains to, thank goodness, Matt, a, a pike who is not confined to a wheelchair just yet. Com, uh, communicating in only beeps and boops that his ribs are going to feel like they're in a Klingon marching band uh, with the xylophone for a while. But he'll live. Uh, Tilly, back in her quarters, uh, takes out her old high school yearbook. Uh, junior high. Junior Musk high. Junior high. You have, you have your um, junior high yearbook on a data pad, right? Well, Pete, in the future, everyone does. Although, I guess to be fair, Pete, you know, Tilly moved around a lot as we're about to learn from young May Ahern. Uh, maybe she's a little sentimental like that, you know, couldn't make the connections, but keeps proof of them nonetheless. Uh, anyhow, she goes to the signatures page, uh, young May Ahern, 
uh, is giving this this farewell uh, statement to her. Uh, Tilly then asks the ship's computer to find Ahern May uh, on the ship. There's nobody uh, with such a name on the ship. Uh, and then Wall searched the f- entire Federation database. Turns out Pete May Ahern died three years ago. I mean, we had the discussion earlier in the episode about Hugh. Now Tilly is seeing someone who's dead. This was helpful in a situation. Boy, again, it's it's a darn shame Star Trek Discovery doesn't build stories, right? No connection to anything. The first bottle episode there ever was. Uh, we get an act break, and then Pike is in his ready room. Burnham comes in to visit. A great joke, non-joke about how he... No joke, so he doesn't hurt his ribs. She notes that uh, on Vulcan, you know, they don't make jokes, which gets a chuckle out of him. Uh, bottom line, though, Pete, he thanks her for following orders, and she's learned the hard way about following orders. Uh, finally, Pete, she has more to share, which makes sense now and not at the beginning of the episode because it would have spoiled this act. Uh, the red angel that those on the planet worship, she saw one too. It was beautiful, but not necessarily divine in her eyes. Yeah, and they've talked so much about how this season is going to be the science versus faith um, analysis and that earlier in the episode, she was the one telling Pike, well, you know, this is coincidence that this has happened. And now she's relaying this story because she now trusts the captain that has jumped on top of a phaser building to detonation. We also get some, uh, well, a little extra story momentum here, though help cannot be given directly to everybody. How about they do a little barter for the helmet camera? Uh, we cut to Jacob returning to the church basement. Pike is there resplendent in uniform. He says that Jacob was uh, right. They do travel uh, on a transporter light. They do use a ship to fly among the stars and Earth. It's part of a galactic federation. The implication they are formed for a greater good. But Pike cannot help more. And uh, I like the story conclusion here by Jacob. He's happy to just have been given an answer that's more than was done in the past. And he deactivates the distress beacon. We're presented with a stark contrast, not just to Lorca, but to the future with Kirk, who would have come up with his own way to do this. And here, Pike does it within the constraints of the Federation at the same time, that gray area. And I'm going to trade you this power cell with a really, really long life. And you're going to give me the helmet camera footage that is broken and no one will ever be able to see once I return to my ship. I guess I'm slightly unclear. I mean, I know what Pike has been through in this episode, but here he is still trading current tech for something that he could have just swiped quickly. It makes for a nice story moment, which probably is a larger point. And I don't need to be slavishly dedicated to, you know, intricate definitions of fake Star Trek law. But um, anyhow, the trade is made. The men shake hands. Jacob knows that they will meet again, perhaps foreshadowing. Uh, Pike calls for transport, and he goes home, Pete, on that beam of light. Jacob takes the new battery, uh, hooks it up to the, the 
lights in the church. There's a magnificent shot of the church lighting up. Uh, similarly, we get a magnificent exterior shot of Discovery later. Pike in his ready room. He's looking at the footage of the helmet cam. We see the survivors in the church. Chaos all around as the Red Angel indeed does appear. Pete, we have an incoming threat analysis. Let's start with that pesky asteroid. Metrion charge. We've certainly heard about Metrion particles before, but still in the main shuttle bay. And, you know, for the threat in this episode, again, to, to have been brought on board in a previous episode and to uh, endanger, but at the same time provide the means for Discovery to save this community, uh, not just New Eden, but the entire uh, planet's population is an interesting way to go. It is. And I think that, I mean, you know, we've been joking slash not joking about the existence of connective tissue from one episode to the other. I might have preferred a scenario where they had the asteroid for one episode and it didn't do anything until they used it again. Um, I also can understand the desire to have a a clear-cut narrative through line here. This doesn't need to be, you know, this isn't some mystery show or this isn't, you know, like Mr. Robot where if you don't keep all your notes and charts up to date, then you lose track of where things are at. Um, but it was, it certainly was a nice use of, of the asteroid uh, being useful, being the, the key solution to this episode. We also get that dark matter discharge that, uh, that sends Tilly flying. And I think clearly there's the implication uh, particularly on reflection, that she starts to see uh, May Ahern after <laughs> after uh, getting that discharge. As the computer notes, this discharge of unknown origin and the trouble that it gets her into physiologically, we deal with. Um, the dark matter would seem to be separate from the asteroid itself, um, but that this happens and it leads to Tilly seeing May Ahern, who we learn by episodes and is not a member of the crew and is no longer among the living, um, brings up a lot of interesting questions for us to, of course, look at in the next segment. Well, Pete, we have long-range sensors scanning ahead. Let's start with a look back. Couldn't help but notice that the Star Trek chronology, second edition, published in 1996, notes that the Enterprise was on a five-year mission ending in 2257, then went into dry dock for a year for refitting. That fits perfectly with everything we have seen on Discovery so far. Why would we expect that it wouldn't? The show is made by people who love Star Trek and its history and continue to honor that. It, it certainly just struck me that, you know, everything presented to us in the last episode regarding the Enterprise, it has always been there. They just happen to overlay, you know, a minor war that brought the Federation to the brink of utter disaster. They overlaid that onto the existing uh, chronology lowercase and you know still it fits perfectly so more focus on this episode pete 
do we have a g -g -g ghosts or rather has the tiniest mycelial green sprout last seen at the end of last season has that taken hold inside of tilly somehow i mean it's got to be right that that landed on her shoulder and uh we get stamets telling her in this episode of all episodes i'm not only figuratively seeing uh hugh i'm literally seeing him when i go inside the network like you said before we get the quick exit from the reaction cube and we never see his perspective and he's not pleased so one has to wonder if we might come back to that at some point um, the only other possibility I could think of would be that dark matter. Um, does that have a way of, uh, you know, tapping into your psyche to present something that you're familiar with to attempt to communicate with you? Well, Pete, this is why I do my best to stay hashtag spoiler free. Now, of course, I had my lapse over the summer when the only Star Trek available was uh, the preview for season two. And I won't, I won't hit the center of the target in terms of talking about you know, future footage of her future episodes shown in that preview, but we saw the green sprout ominously, maybe not ominously, but very obviously landing on her shoulder at the end of last season. Now there's something up with her. We certainly had some dots which could be connected in the last episode about dark matter and the nature of the asteroid. Now we have... Oh, and also being this alternative, you know, in this episode too, being this alternative to Stamets. So kind of, it's a lot of science-y stuff, but dark matter, connection to mycelial network, connection to the mycelia and the spores and what landed on Tilly's shoulder. And gee whiz, Pete, if only it could somehow help the sad Stamets somehow, I think we can all tell what direction things are likely headed in. The same science versus faith here. The scientific tells us what happens when something dies, um, yet the energy always somehow there, right? Law of thermodynamics. And that somebody who's died several years before is now being seen that Tilly hasn't interacted with in, in quite some time. So, hmm, some connection on a writer's room whiteboard, I'm sure. Uh, as mentioned before, Pete, Pike does seem awfully enamored with General Order 1, the Prime Directive, uh, at least at the top of the episode. Do you think this has been reinforced by his experience on Talos 4 and the events which led to General Order 7? Don't go to bad planets ever again. I continue with well, that. The, there's a death penalty in place if you even talk about it. Let's not forget that from the original series. Uh, I continue to be surprised that people... Uh, bring up Talos 4 and not understand that Alex Kurtzman brought it up himself at New York Comic Con and people didn't react when that happened, which was shocking. So I would bet my bottom dollar that all of his experience is hinged on that encounter. Pete, I don't know if you or the listeners are familiar with the uh, the psycho remake from the late 90s which was a shot for shot remake um which was widely criticized because the movie was terrible it was only using the hitchcock script and the hitchcock camera directions and things of that sort it does cross my mind 
you know, I think it's, to me, it's a foregone conclusion. We're going to get the lightly, lovingly revamped Enterprise Bridge before the end of the season. Um, it would be interesting if we got some, at some point, whether it's a short track or I doubt the spinoff series, but if we got, if we got some shot for shot, um, loving redos of, of the story of the cage, um, it would just be interesting to see it if only just to have it kind of inserted into the narrative now. Yes. With the knowledge that, you why know, do you taunt spoiler Pete like this? Uh, I, I didn't know I was. Pete, can you say anything on the record or shall we move on to the next, uh, the next long range thing? Not without spoiling you. Oh, well then Pete on to the next thing. And this, I must admit, I cribbed from, I don't know. I, I don't know which prominent Star Trek news website had the, uh, very down review on this episode, but I thought they asked a good question in their review. That was way more down on the episode than I was. Uh, where's Jet Reno? Not in this episode. It's as simple as that. She doesn't need to be. Tignataro's uh, presence in the season two opener was great. She's not a regular. When we need her again, she will come back up. They didn't officially place her on the Discovery. Could have dropped her off at whatever star base. After, with the Enterprise. With the Enterprise. After she had kept all these crew members alive that otherwise wouldn't. You know, she's kind of earned her way out of this episode. Oh my goodness, Pete. When she does return, here's what the line could be. Oh man, uh, I was so eager to get home. You know, you guys sent me home on the Enterprise. Boy, that engineer, he does not shut up about his ship. He really loves that ship. Something like that would be great. Ha ha from the comedian. Anyhow, Pete, are you ready for a deep dive on Tilly's Google Drive slash iPhone home screen slash the thing she had open on Burnham's workstation? I just love that she had all these tabs open. <laughs> uh, here are a couple things from there. First of all, I think the main thing that's open is the CTP, Command Training Program Training Manual. Uh, she's got a CTP checklist. She's already done the bridge tour with Captain Pike. Uh, she has completed... Uh, was that a 5K sprint uh, challenge? She has reported results to CTP director Saru. So there we go, Pete. Saru, her the one kind of keeping track of things. Here's her to-dos on the checklist. Ask Michael about her time in the CTP. Complete mental faculties test. Uh, submit study on Orion Customs. She's met her actual Orions. Uh, complete test on xenoanthropology studies. Complete test on xenoarchaeology and study for exam boy i sure hope that somebody that has so much to do doesn't suddenly have the complication of seeing someone who died several years before by the way pete there's also a another checklist although not the ctp checklist uh some of it fairly innocuous study for test uh there, make appointment Come on, person making this. Really make appointment? <laughs> Come on. How about, you know, I mean, it could be anything. I mean, instead it was uh, make appointment. There's also ask Saru. Okay. Check with Bryce. Reply to Arium. So I like that Bryce and Arium are getting the shout out there. Although, what needs to be checked with Bryce? What needs to be replied to Arium? I don't know. Pete, here's the big takeaway. Let's spend the next 20 minutes theorizing about this. She needs to, and this is not a joke. This was on screen. Get deodorant. <laughs> Hey, you know what? They can't replicate it in the future, apparently. <laughs> um, 
I have uh, some theories, Matt, I'd like to talk about that Spock drew these seven bursts two months before. Does he have his own May Ahern? If we go with the 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 sketchy theory, but supported by the little evidence that we've seen so far, that his that pardon me that that Tilly's seeing of Ahern is a um, is a result of a dark matter interaction. We are not aware of Spock having had a dark matter interaction like that. Now, could that Doesn't be mean revealed? He hasn't. Sure, I, I totally agree. But I, again, based on the scant amount of evidence, I would say. No, but all they need to do is say, there I was studying the dark matter when it shot me. And then I saw, uh, I saw the, the talking to me was my, uh, dog friend. What was it that in yesteryear? <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, and, and that's when I said, I must be going crazy. Actually, Pete, I really like this theory because that would, if his, um, Salot, Salot was the species, not the yes. Ichaya. As soon as I saw Ichaya talking to me, that's when I realized I was having a break and needed to go to Starbase 5, psychiatric unit, new spin well, Remember, he was he was a week into his leave before he voluntarily committed himself, which I think is all interesting information. Conceivably, Matt, returning to Vulcan or going wherever and then, oh, I need to be someplace to receive the help that I need. Dude, if Ichaya was talking to me, my step one, my, my first step would be take a leave of absence. Then when Ichaya continued to talk to me, I would then check in for help. So I think this all, this all fits. So the seven bursts were told in, uh, the previous episode that they are spread out across 30,000 light years. Now, Matt, we've used the spore drive to get to one of them that was further than that initial distance. Did they forget the number or are they moving? Well, can't it be both? Maybe maybe the real world answer is they forgot. Although, it, it, to me, it seems a little sketchy. Like, not for nothing. It's not like, this is episode 12 and you know what? Between the... Oops, we fired, uh, you know, the the two showrunners and all this upheaval, and we took a, a a winter holiday break, and then this this fell off the apple cart along the way. Like this is the next episode. Could be that they forgot. Could be a continuity issue. Um, but I think it's certainly in universe. Sure, the red things are moving faster than one could even think, uh, because of mysterious reasons. It would seem apparent why we get summoned to new Eden that we could wind up with the uh, helmet camera video of the red angel, our most tangible evidence yet other than, you know, Burnham's recollection of what she saw when she may or may not have been concussed. But uh, what about Jacob? What about what happens to Tilly? Uh, what about these stained glass windows, Matt? Is is there more to it than just, you need this video? I mean, Jacob says, and you know, we'll go just on the, what the character says in dialogue, that he thinks he will see Pike again. 
Well, concerning that line of dialogue, you know, I had written it down in my notes and whatnot. It had not stuck with me at the time. Um, clearly, it's setting up some sort of some sort of possibility for the future. You know, I mean, we've had that happen before. Lieutenant Star Trek. Jacob. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I did not love with unending, you know, with unending passion. I did not love this episode. Um, but I don't think that that crowds my, or clouds rather, my following opinion, which is I don't need to return to New Eden anytime soon. Uh, I don't need to hear a story of what it was like, you know, kind of this Amish like jump, you know, to go from 200 years ago level of technology to modern technology. I kind of don't need to follow Jacob or anybody else on that journey. I mean, maybe if nothing else, maybe they're setting up, uh, or if most obviously they're not setting up his return in an, in an episode proper. Maybe it's in a short trek, which, you know, would be interesting. Uh, and I'm willing to trust where they would go with short treks, but I kind of, I don't have this burning desire to see how that society is now going to potentially completely fall apart now that everything that they hold dear is being chipped away as, as appreciative of it as it is of religion slash as great it would be to be like, look, future tech, I mean, it's going to completely demolish their society. I, I don't need to see that. You mentioned established chronology before. There's another callback, albeit 10 years in the future, Matt, from when the, uh, the first saved were transported, of course, are the events of Star Trek First Contact in 2063. Go on. No, I just think that that's you know, that they had missed that and been brought there. Um, and again, you're operating in these little crannies, almost like dark matter, Matt. You know, you, you go into these spaces in between um, that they've set that up there. So let me just connect the dots here. I know you just gave the year. Uh, the the people, the, the, the new Eden people that we're seeing were pulled out in 2253 and then when mm -hmm. the first contact is in the 2260 uh, is in the 2060s right 2063 the first interaction between humans and vulcans april 5th that is <laughs> that kind of saddens the whole situation i mean granted the church is out to be bombed and because of the upheaval of world war three you know likely to assume these people are going to die but yeah that next great step for humanity oh so close and they missed out entirely there's you know what pete maybe if they do return to this i uh, i i would watch that episode so the church are we to read that the church itself as a building was transported or did they just make their own from what they found around there in the 200 years since although they said the stained glass windows were 200 years old I think it's not clear in the episode we watched. Maybe it was clear in a earlier edit or draft or whatever. Uh, I'm a landing on the notion that the entire church was transported. You might then say, or oh, not you, Pete, because you could figure out what I'm about to say, but well, what about the glass? All right, well, they've updated the, the glass since then. Um, but yeah, I did get the impression that the entire church was transported. If I'm wrong, then it is just as you said. They rebuilt a church just like the one they had left in order to commemorate this great thing. And lastly, first time we've been told that Tilly is the youngest member 
of the command training program. Certainly the bond with Saru gets deepened, and I think it brings up even more pressure for her now that she's seeing someone who's not really there. Definitely, you know, again, the connective tissue from episode to episode, Saru's in-the-moment wisdom is also setting up what clearly is going to be a continuing thing where, you know, she sees dead people. Um, I'll mention too, Pete, in that Frakes interview that I referenced at the top of the podcast, he kind of, uh, w- with praise, but he mentions, you know, at the beginning of, uh, of Discovery, Tilly was such an out-there character that didn't quite fit in, and now people love her. Um, and I'm slightly simplifying his point, but his point basically being like, this wasn't a star- normal Star Trek kind of character. In this episode where she's the bright whiz kid uh, who doesn't always mesh with the grown-ups, Pete, this is kind of like a Wesley character slightly reimagined. I'm sure we discussed that in the first season, but I feel like we get kind of a, a restatement of that as an archetype with exactly what you're talking about concerning her great intellect and her her bleeding edge advancements uh, that she's experiencing. She's the Wesley you love to love. With that, let's go to Hailing Frequencies. Hailing Frequencies open, sir. Pete, we ran a poll on Twitter. Uh, your thoughts about the episode, along with uh, whatever theories people might have. The choices, four stars, bright lights, three stars, keeping faith, two stars, needs power cell, one star, nuclear bomb. Uh, happy to say 0% gave it a 1, 4% gave it a 2, 15% gave it 3 stars, and 81% gave it 4 stars uh, for the episode. I think fair marks all around. Uh, we also had some great tweets from Annie Harrington. Uh, first was a question from her. Was May present peripherally in the first season two episode i felt like i recognized her when she showed up but i might be wrong i love that they selected an actor from an underrepresented ethnic background that being guyanese i did not notice her uh certainly we can go back and look and i think given that this is a show that is put on a streaming network week to week there's a certain amount of you know, things that could go back and be scrutinized as opposed to a, a binge. And, you know, you're, you're going to get your answers much sooner rather than later. Uh, I know that as of, as of yesterday, uh, the actress was not credited for episode 201. She was credited for 202. She uh, was also in uh, Handmaid's Tale, which, which I think might be why she looked familiar to, to a number of us, um, I I regret that they did not kind of work her in there. Well, I guess work her in there if she could have been there. Maybe it's her absence is evidence that it is connected to the dark matter blast and things of that sort. Um, and he'd also uh, had a great theory. Uh, she said, I have a theory that they're going to shave off Spock's beard later in the season and have a Spock reveal 2.0. It will be a symbol of him getting out of the weeds of his existential crisis and becoming the Spock we know. I think that has a very strong likelihood. Uh, we also had some tweets from Karen Chu on Twitter. Uh, okay, music, uh, again, amazing. This is consistently the most amazing score. I really enjoyed this again. I feel like I'm reading a book each episode so far. I don't know what it is, but I love it. 
I love the feeling of a novel come to life. The visuals, again, amazing. That scene pulling the radiation away. That ship is gorgeous. And the <laughs> movement, so cool. I seriously don't know what or who the Red Angel is, but that last scene where Pike just sees a flash of it, it was chilling. I love that he could navigate that mission as well. And then a question here. Uh, is the angel benevolent? Twice it has led to saving people, but did it put them in harm's way? We don't know how the Hiawatha got where it was. Who is May? What is May? Is it the green speck landed on Tilly from the network? And then lastly, and come on, initiating donut maneuver is an iconic line now. It it is, and you know, just on the on the music there, because I think we've answered a lot of those other um, comments. Uh, Jeff Rosso has done a tremendous job with uh, Discovery. Um, and I think too, if we haven't squarely answered the benevolence of the angel, I mean, to me, it seems like a net benevolence. Um, maybe the Hiawatha just wrong time, wrong place. Um, we also had a tweet from jt atkins who will say and, and pt floated this before i don't know if we discussed yes. it last episode oh, we did okay but it, it's more sagacious now he says <laughs> i will say this i stand by my prediction that they're going to change the series title to this season to he's obviously tongue-in-cheek to the red angel friended me uh this is week two of the discovery following the dots to help those in need next week rakesh hacks into the klingon high council's computers <laughs> That's Lieutenant Commander Rakesh. Let's not bust his rank there, um, JT. Um, yeah, and obviously, you know, a little tongue-in-cheek, he's also referring to the show God Friend of Me that we also podcast, which curiously has the same, you know, or a similar, you know, mysterious force guiding people to do right things and help out each week. Um, another tweet here from Annie Harrington. Uh, yours is far and away my favorite Discovery podcast. I love that you keep it enthusiastic and geeky while still knowing that Trek is a show and not a wholly religious text. Wow. Uh, that said, one <laughs> wee petty gripe. Your pronunciations of Awokashan and Saru could use some tweaking. Pete, I'm going to have to go back and check the episodes. I thought that we were nailing it with both. I think we've got both. But again, you know, this is this is why this TV show and this franchise um, – you know, has such passionate fans because people care about it. And as Annie points out that it's, that it's not this religious text that you only say Jesus and not Jesus. <laughs> uh, last tweet here, at least from, uh, from my current data stream, uh, this is from James. It's at big Killen on Twitter, more episodes than signals. Uh, so this season takes some crazy turns to pick up Spock, the Empress, and the Klingons. Theory, the Red Angel sent Pike on this mission to earn his third act. He's paying uh, some sort of penance for a past sin. Michael's issue with Spock is a plot decoy. I'm going to have to wait and see. Um, Ian Knight, Matt, longtime friend of the podcast, that's at Zort70. He had brought up some of the lost connections that between last week with the registry uh, NCC 815 of the Hiawatha and this week with the stained glass window in the church, which was the very first thing that occurred to me when you saw the Star of David. I was like, wait a minute. And then it had all the other call outs, those that didn't watch lost to the end or didn't do a podcast about it. Right, Matt? Um, you know, not knowing that in the final episode, uh, character winds up in a church and there is a stained glass window with every major religion 
present, but there were some other uh, interesting connections as well. We have a character named Jacob that having high symbolic meaning uh, for lost. But how about a rose too, Matt? I thought that that was very interesting. Yes, Rose, who I think is is meant to be his daughter in this episode of Discovery. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's obviously the direct indirect connection. You know, Lost, JJ, JJ Kurtzman. Although Kurtzman wasn't involved with uh, with Lost, unless I'm mistaken. I don't think I am, but certainly Kurtzman and the the, the JJ Trek films, and now Kurtzman, right. the Star Trek guru. Um, it, it seems like somebody in the writer's room has a has a soft spot for lost and if so you know so say we all but uh it's did rose's cancer disappear uh when they were uh, whisked away 200 years ago um yes by the radiation of the uh of the the red angel which visited the island apart from the fact that she wasn't alive yet and, and conceived on this planet like everybody living there now uh unless there was f- further time jumps well, we'll just have to keep an eye out for a smoke monster. To Facebook, Matt, where Mary Jane Dizak, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. If I'm not, please let me know. It's spelled D-Z-I-A-K. Writes in, it's great to have Disco back and great to listen to your podcast on a full-length episode once again, too. Brother got me on a deep emotional level several times. I have to agree with uh, Mary Jane on that. The the conversation between uh, Tilly and Stamets in that first episode was particularly emotional for me. It was such a sweet way to begin the second season. I have to say that these are trying times for true fans of Trek. I had not previously heard of the incident at the con that you talked about, but I am glad that you are not ignoring the inexplicably aggressive behavior of the anti-fan. I don't know how this is all going to work out, but I do know that CBS loves themselves some Trek and Disco is a cut above all its predecessors. It should live long and prosper, at least if Linus sneezes all over his shipmates too often. I think there's a missing word or uh, maybe some letters on some words there. Matt, are you an engineer? She asks. I was interested in hearing your comments on the turbo lift, but I don't think you actually got to them. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm certainly well-versed in Star Trek engineering. Whoa, um, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's pump the brakes on that, okay? I can tell you, and you know, listeners of this podcast can go back and listen. Matt is actually in the engineering division of Starfleet on the USS. Uh, is that classified, Pete? Can I say it? Why don't you say it? <laughs> I, listen, I can't declassify information, so if it is classified – don't reveal it, but Matt is in Starfleet and he is in a division. <laughs> I am in Starfleet, uh, not conscripted, uh, but I put myself there and um, I'm in the in the command division. Um, wa- rewatching this episode, wow, he some completely of those... dodged the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's his prerogative. That's his prerogative. Absolutely, you know. Look. Not all you know about General Order 8, but let me just say General Order 8 <laughs> prevents me from saying too much, especially to 21st century Earthers. We're, we're trying to prevent World War III here, okay? We're almost there. Got another another couple of years to fix a thing, and then it'll, it should be okay, but I digress. Um, 
rewatching this episode, looking at the some of these beautiful shots around the ship, and then paying particular attention to the bridge view screen as it relates to the the exterior i'll say model for lack of a better word the exterior model of the ship computer model um and the what two-story or three-story shuttle bay in the back this is like a five or six deck ship by my counting um or at least five or six story um maybe not you know building you know maybe it's 20 foot decks or whatever but this is not a very tall ship is my point and there's not these there's not this huge volume of space on the inside that we saw in that in that turbo lift shot. I don't know what they were thinking when they put it in there. If it's just some wacky effect shot, I, you know, again, there's only so much time I want to spend. I think I, we, I think there's only so much time you want to spend on transporter or pardon me, turbo lift uh, shaft theorizations and whatnot. To me, it still does not compute um, because this is a this is a small compact ship. Pete, this is a ship whose crew complement is less than that of Pike's Enterprise, which is going in for a refit now to eventually have room for a 400. Uh, when he's been out there in Talos 4 and other places, it's got a crew complement of 203, and Discovery has even less, 117, 120, something like that. So this is a small, you know, this, this, is, this is a ship that has a small interior space. It's big on engines, big on spore drive, big on fight, but yeah. That's, that's all I can say about that, Pete. John Stewart also writes in, I have a quick theory of what may be happening. What if the apparition Tilly sees is a Q trying to combat whatever is happening with the Red Angels? Maybe rules restrict what she can do. So she's helping Discovery stumble onto the problems. One of the great things about Q as the singular character and the Q continuum and all that is that it is so bonkers and so antithetical to normal Star Trek, which is like science plus a little thing like it's scientifically possible we could visit a planet that has Nazis on it. Let's go down there and punch Nazis in the face. Um, and Qs are magic godlike godlike entities. I would love for there to be a Q connection, whether it's with May Ahern. I think not. I think it's a it's you know as we discussed but they want to bring the Q back in general they want to bring back john delancey who's going to say oh because i've gone back in time now i look like i'm 65 you know whatever it is bring on the Q. I think i hope that they're saving Q for picard pete how could they not how could they not it's as simple as that. He needs to be in the first episode of the season and the last episode, last episode of the season, just like that. Pete, with that, we have, there's an emergency transponder coming in. It's, it's, it's Fred. Are you ready to hear from Fred? Always. Hello, Madam Pete. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 2. Nice episode. Easier to comprehend than the first one, but perhaps that's because we get used a little bit to the new story. What I found a little bit disappointing is that we still haven't seen Spock and still haven't seen number one. Let's start with the best quote of the episode. I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be on bed rest, but that is practically an affront to my very existence. And the second best. Sport drive is ready, Captain. Questions or concerns before we depart, Captain? 
If you're telling me that this ship can skip across the universe on a highway made of mushrooms, I kind of have to go in faith. I was quite amazed about that they reused the spore drive again. Of course, on the internet and on the podcast, there is a lot of discussion how to get the spore drive in canon so that we don't have problems when Kirk is going to lead the Enterprise. Using it now again and again doesn't make it easier because in the history records, more and more will be mentioned about the spore drive. What I didn't like so much is the build-up of ionizing radiation in the atmosphere, giving a destruction of all life, and it's eminent in 46 minutes, etc. And of course, transport is not possible, communication with the landing party not possible, and a shuttle cannot be taken down. OG, OG. I think they use this kind of tropes already too much, and should have used a little more... Of their imagination. And one other nitpick is that when Tilly is blown away by the piece of the asteroid, that she falls down on the on the ground and already has a big stream of blood on her cheek. This just happens so fast. Okay, normally you fall and then it starts bleeding out of your ear, for instance, and it streams down. And and this was already. So it's just a little bit, it's all possible, but it's just too, too, too fast. So that's a little medical nitpick. I found Burnham a little irritating, and Soniqua played it very well, so she had to play that role. But I've, what I found irritating is that she is not believing in, in, in no way that it could be a miracle, and she will prove it by scientific way, as the science officer, of course, that uh, it, it, it's something that she can explain. One other thing is a bit, yeah, having an attitude, saying that these people deserve to be integrated into modern society. Well, if modern society is so good, so perhaps they are happy in their new Eden, as Pike also states. So I think Pike had a better attitude here towards these things than than Burnham. The general order is, of course, a very problematic thing in this case. I think Pike did the right thing to go back to Jacob and explain what happened the last 200 years outside their world. Okay, that was all for now. Greets, Fred from the Netherlands. Pete, Fred's words always appreciated there. Uh, I think it's difficult to argue with his logic that Tilly's injury and the bleeding out of her ears... It's unlikely it would happen that fast, but I think as we discussed, that's just kind of, that's the TV shorthand for, this is a really big injury. Well, they did say she almost died. Um, To imagine that she was struck with such force that suddenly she's bleeding profusely from the head and is saved by 22nd, 23rd century, um, you know, healthcare is uh, not that unbelievable. I think Fred was more focusing on the the timing of it. Like she gets hit, you know, in 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 the the time from her getting hit to landing on the ground, it's maybe 2 seconds in that time blood has reached, you know, her chin, that kind of thing, but in the future there's weird and wacky ways to get hurt. When when you get decked by dark matter, we'll see what happens to you, Matt. <laughs> Fair enough. Um 
Fred also uh, mentions uh, Burnham's kind of uh, inability or, or, well, we'll stick with inability to think in a religious sense. Uh, Pete, for some reference here, uh, there was an article on uh, the Washington Post website of this past uh, April with which basically said um, that 89 to 90% of Americans, apologies, Fred, this is the fastest thing I could find in a couple of seconds, but about uh, close to 90% of Americans believe in God or higher power or spiritual force, that kind of thing. So I think it's quite high regardless of where you're worshiping or if you worship at all or, or whatever that might be. Now, imagine a future where that number is flipped around, where it's 90%, 95% or more who have just abandoned religion. And again, this might kind of feel like a slightly foreign topic, I think, to a lot of people who at the very least don't want to, you know, don't want to say, well, you know, in Star Trek, there is no God. Right. In, in Star Trek, people don't believe in God um, in, in a religious sense at all. That's how it is. So I kind of, as kind of difficult as it was, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not very active in my faith, but I, I certainly was a bit shocked. You know, hey, Burnham doesn't believe in in any of that stuff. Well, that's status quo for most 23rd century folks. Well, let's not forget that Awokashun mentioned in this episode, she and her family are not believers. Then also that the seeming incredulity, Matt, of a woman, a human woman raised on Vulcan wouldn't believe in religion. I mean, that kind of is the DNA of the character. I think that's a great observation that even if, even if there is uh, something of a religious sentiment still on earth, she's obviously so far removed from it that, uh, that, that that's foreign to her way of thinking. Well, Pete, luckily in a, in a much smaller scale we have our faithful supporting us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek making sure that our bleeps and bloops can make it into the future even on a 200 year battery powered broadcast to the stars everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content there's all sorts of levels after that if you want matt to appear in front of you as your red angel we can make that happen i will also explain what has happened in the last 200 years. Uh, Pete, we truly could not do it without our patrons. So thanks one and all who go to patreon.com slash fantastic geek and check things out. But of course, when it comes to communications, there's a cheaper way to do it. Pete, people can talk to you on Twitter. How can they find you? Comms are always open at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,330 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, hey, that's from a Lost podcast. Uh, do share your thoughts about Star Trek Discovery. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. Don't forget that in these United States, you can also call our listener line, 732-707-1815. Hey, that's like the Hiawatha. Uh, leave a message there. Or you can make like Fred, record it on your end, and then email it. But wait, Pete, that's not all. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the PH, all one word. Like it today, like Mary Jane, like John. Get on there, like it, and you'll be connected to what we do, not just Star Trek, but all of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and beyond. 
Indeed, Pete, our pop culture podcast feed, in addition to talking about Star Trek Discovery, we're also talking about Marvel's The Punisher, a vastly differently toned show. Definitely um, not as hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not as hopeful indeed. Uh, we're doing that three times a week. And uh, before you know it, Pete, that'll be done with. We'll return to Godfriend and Me, which, as JT Atkins mentioned, is also about a possibly benevolent, definitely mysterious force helping out our heroes as they help people along the way. So hashtag it's all connected. We, of course, Pete, will be back next Saturday to talk more Star Trek. So look forward to hearing from people as we get to episode 203, which has a title. I don't know what it is because that's the way that is. But now, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. Thank you for the fellowship. <laughs>